Hi, welcome to Think Tank. Each week, we'll have a discussion with an expert in their industry to get the best advice for small and medium business owners in Wales. I'm Chris, and I'm the podcast editor for the Think Tank. Today, I'll be chatting with Mark Drakeford, the First Minister of Wales, about the economy and the impact of the coronavirus on small businesses. I'll also be speaking with Jack Bjornstrom, the head interior designer for House in Wales. He'll be telling me more about what business owners can do to help prepare their retail spaces and offices for reopening. Let's begin with head interior designer of House, Jack Bjornstrom. So, Jack, every business with a premises across the world is going to need to make some changes to their workspace. Let's take restaurants and pubs. How can they adapt and change to comply with a social distancing policy? So I think a really good case study to look at here with restaurants and pubs are uh, what they've been doing at the moment in Sweden. Sweden never had an official lockdown of all their businesses. Instead, they asked people to use common sense and they asked places that would hold a lot of public people to think about how they could maybe socially distance them within their businesses. Uh, An example is a restaurant owner in Sweden who put signs on every other table in his restaurant to allow people to sit one table's width apart at all times. Um, This enabled him then to start offering more takeout food. So the takeout food was a previous branch to his business that was small. He did a few sales in coffees every day, nothing huge. Now he's doing food and coffee for full takeout options. um, And this is allowing him to double what he could make in a day. So initially he could only fit, I think was 50 people in his restaurant and he can serve, he's serving now on average 250 people a day. Um, so this is something that is a positive move, I think for a lot of restaurant owners. So would you say then that we potentially, as as if restaurant owners, things like that, would we have to possibly look at maybe two, maybe three sit-ins uh, and, and give sort of a time limit Um, to people being at a table? I think in cafes, it would sort of be more self-explanatory. You would walk in, you would look around, you'd see that there's no space available for you, um, and then maybe go up to the counter and order for takeaway, or maybe go to a different cafe and and try there to see if there's any seats available. Um, I think with restaurants, organisation is always key, and knowing where you are in terms of the amount of food you order is key. I think... Initially, when things start to go back to normal, yes, restaurants will obviously see more work. Um, but I still think a lot of people will be slightly nervous to leave. So some restaurant owners might order too much stock and end up wasting food because they're doing it for a normal amount of capacity that they would have in an evening. So I think by asking all of your customers to book first for their seats would allow custom would allow the restaurants really to know where they stand on how many customers they're expecting per night. Um, I think this also helps to structure how you will seat people and how you'll keep them apart, because obviously you can separate your restaurant up into sections, but that doesn't really accommodate for if a large family that all live together want to go to a restaurant for an occasion. Mm-hmm. Some restaurant owners move tables around in order to accommodate for that. So I think having some form of booking for restaurants would be definitely an advantage. So is this the return of the booth or, um, you know, instead of the traditional table layout, are we all going to end up in a booth that's quite tall and, um, you know, in order to sort of 
uh, stop people from, I don't know, sneezing on each other or something? I don't think necessarily a, a booth is the option. Um, obviously, a lot of business owners have incurred a lot of financial loss through this time, and they're already slightly worried about how they're going to recover their business from this. So I think rushing out and spending a lot of money on completely redesigning your your shop being not necessarily the best thing to do. But I think if we take, for an example, uh, in our French offices, we're surrounded by lots of cafes in Paris and they really do cram the people in uh, we've taken that on as a sort of a benchmark of how a cafe or a restaurant should look and it's completely socially acceptable for you to go into a restaurant and be quite close next to a stranger and not really to affect you or affect your experience of anything sometimes it enhances the experience I think now we're starting to think differently and I think society is starting to change differently that going into a restaurant that maybe has a bit more open space, a bit more breathing room where you can't necessarily hear the conversation of the family next to you. It is almost expected now, and I think will be expected from a lot of customers coming back from this. I think if you were to leave your restaurant as it is now, I think a lot of people would walk in, even without signs on the table, I think a lot of them would walk in, see that there wasn't an ample space for them to sit without feeling like they're close to somebody else that they don't know or strangers, then I think they would consider that restaurant to be full and move on and try another one. Mm -hmm. It's for this reason I think that takeout is a really good option. And I think not only does it allow you to sell to more customers that you wouldn't necessarily be able to, I think it allows you to push your brand out further. Um, And I think as long as we're not putting out one fire and starting another by pumping out a load of non-recyclable packaging into the environment, I think as long as you consider things like this, when you're moving more towards a takeout option, I think it's an excellent idea. And with the rise of companies like Deliveroo and Uber Eats, it's so easy to do. So uh, from from the restaurant over to the canteen side of things, um, call centres um, and offices like those, they, they currently have most of their staff furloughed or working from home. While they're away, what should the employer be doing to prepare their workspace um, if and when their team return? So like anything, we're we're all at home at the moment and we're all bored and we're all finding things to do. People are cooking, they're going into their garden, they're redecorating, doing DIY around the house. And I think if you put that same energy into your business and thinking about how you would change things in your business, you know, you can go back and forth to your office on your own um, and and sort of stand in the space and think to yourself, how can I change things to make it suit today's current climate? Because I think when this is all over and we've moved past this, I think it will have permanently changed the way people think. I don't necessarily think cubicle style seated is the best port of call because I think a lot of people will feel lonely. And mm-hmm. when you design spaces, we always think of how it'll make a person feel, uh, how people will interact with that space. Is it set up for good conversation? Is it set up for good workflow? You know, so I think putting people into cubicles in the view of keeping them safe and protected from viruses and even flu season, because employers are losing staff all the time to flu and they can be off for a week, two weeks sometimes. And that's a strain on a workforce. So I think moving forward, if we act in a responsible way, it will be better for the future. So I think maybe spreading desks out is a good call. Um, Putting a system in place where 
you can sit and work from your desk, but that not have to be the place you have to constantly sit and work all the time. Maybe having breakout spaces that are nice and spread out or now is a good time to realise that if you have certain members of staff that work well from home, could they continue working from home? Could they maybe work from home one or two days a week? Could they work from home permanently only ever coming into the office to meet a commercial client in a designed meeting space that is booked out based on when meetings are available? That makes perfect sense. And then, so in between that, then, uh, if if they do decide to do that, I, I assume the cleaning is going to become something that's that's pretty much at the focus of everyone's mind. I mean, if if there's effectively hot desking in a way, um, there'll have to be multiple cleans of, of, a, of a property in a day, or or will we be responsible in a call center sort of environment to to clean up after ourselves? I suppose that's a bit of a difficult one to to judge at the minute is it i think when we come back into the workforce properly i think you know the cleaning industry is something that is always underlooked undervalued but always has to be there and i don't think we always appreciate that also from a budget point of view a lot of employers can't afford to have cleaning companies come in seven days a week to clean their offices especially if they are smaller companies so I think if we looked more at ourselves and how we can personally be responsible for our own spaces, I think we'll be better moving forward that way. I think if we can provide small cleaning stocks available on each desk space or a small cleaning cupboard that is in a meeting room and just briefing your staff, they're going to make mistakes initially. They're going to forget. They're going to go back to how things were initially, but just reinforcing that. And then when you're finished with the space, please could you just give it a quick disinfectant ready for the next person? It's almost like going to the gym. You know you've got to clean the equipment after yourself when you finish using a piece of equipment. You move on to the next one that you then expected to be wiped down and cleaned from the person before you. We'll just get into that sort of rhythm of knowing we're responsible for our own spaces and how we clean them and how we set them up yeah. for the next person. Well, I've been in and out of supermarkets uh, during this virus, and uh, like looking at the smaller retailers, like such as this this local supermarket or a clothing store and things like that. At the moment, they've got a like a one way system set up, and and that seems to be working quite well. But are they best having a maximum occupancy level or installing screening at the moment, or is it a question of both? What What are your thoughts on that? Again, with the previous question with the restaurants, I don't think spending an exorbitant amount of money on screening for your shop necessarily the best move, to be honest, because, like I said, we're all financially losing money in this time where we can't work to our full capacity. So I think maybe if we look at more inventive ways to make our shop work for the current climate, we never moved into these buildings with the expectation of needing to socially distance from people for an extended period of time in order to operate. So a clothing shop, for example, they could maybe take a look at what they've got on the shelves and maybe think to themselves, do I need five of every size of every outfit on the stands for yeah. people to see? Can I maybe have one of everything on a rail with clear signs up that should you want something in a different size or should you want something in a different colour, it's available, please ask. We can get it from the stock room for you and bring it out for you to try on. Yeah, oh, that, make, that does make perfect sense. But um, And then with, with smaller businesses, again, what um, you have things, uh, companies like estate agents and accountants. I mean, 
how how best are they able to maintain dis- social distancing especially like you said they're in smaller stores uh, it tends to be something on the high street or above the high street and it tends to be a contained space um how are they going to be able to stay two meters away at a minimum from the customer uh, at all times and how are they going to display that so that the customer feels uh, i suppose safe enough to go into their premises well firstly i think it's it's more learned behavior at the moment or previously we expected it normal to walk into a meeting to go and see a new house and you shake your estate agent's hand you sit opposite a desk from them that's maybe only a meter distance away from them you're touching the desk that they're touching it's all very normal we never really thought about it and i think we're starting to change the norms of what we do when we interact with other people so initially constant reinforcement is important i think if you have a big conference table with lots of desks and chairs around i think maybe removing some of those chairs so there's one on one side of the desk and one on the other you sit at one the customer automatically knows that they sit at the other one and it so reintroduces itself as being the new social norm i think with a company like state agents it's all about being willing to use technology okay i think we can move forward in huge leaps and bounds when thinking of technology I've seen some estate agents do some amazing things with 360 cameras, with drone footage, uploading these onto their websites, and it being so much more than just plain underscript photos that show nothing but a magnolia wall and a pine kitchen. And it really does give you a sense of how you want to live in that house when you can see it. That is such a jump from what we were doing less than eight weeks ago. This has forced people to think how can I expand an industry that has, in my opinion, stagnated for a while. Mm-hmm. I mean, that does make sense. I think that I think we all have to adapt slightly and uh, um, and it's inevitably is going to be for the better. Um, uh, but in terms of people's offices and homes, I mean, um, more offices, I suppose, there'll be a lot more signage that's needed uh, across the sectors. Um, to help people understand the distancing that's needed. Um, how would, uh, as, as, as an aesthetic consultant, interior designer, um, how would you suggest companies incorporate the signage into their colour scheme or into their offices so it, it stays within the flow of uh, their message and their, the effort that they've already put into the premises, but still being compliant? Um, when it comes to signage, I think we've sort of got to be a bit careful. We want it to be something that is instantly recognisable, but not necessarily standing out. We don't want to print and make it look like a biohazard. Um, so I think when you're looking at signage, you really need to think of where do my customers see the most when they walk into my building? Is it a straightaway on the front door when they walk in? Is it at a reception desk when they wait to see when their appointment is? So I think if we consider where our customers go, how they use the building, what they see, we can decide what's the best place to put these signs. I've seen a lot of people put um, signs on clear acrylic boards on reception desks so that they're seen instantly as soon as they're walking into a building or on a door right by a push panel where someone would walk in and then repeated throughout the building on all doors. Um, I think as long as we keep them in quite a neutral font and a neutral colour, they can fit in with almost any aesthetic of building, because I suppose we don't want them to blend in too much, but we don't want them to stand out. So I think keeping them quite clean, clear, concise, 
it doesn't need to be a paragraph, just quite short, punchy lines. You know, the way the government have been getting the message across mm -hmm. to us has been short, punchy lines that just re are repeated constantly and are now ingrained in us. We'll all know the stay home, save lives, protect the NHS. We'll constantly know that. So I think keeping it the same, um, you know, keep your distance, uh, sanitise your station two metres apart. Something short and punchy like that will keep people remembering the message, what they have to do, where they go in, and mix it up. You know, you could have those sorts of signs in common areas, but in the in the bathrooms or in the toilets or in the food preparation areas, having signs up that just say, wash your hands, use sanitizer, sit two metres apart, and just sort of keeping it so people are reading it and they know what it's about and they they ultimately doing what you're asking. I do like the sanitize your station. I think yeah. that, that may catch on. <laughs> um, uh, in terms of uh, returning to the workplace, I think there's going to be quite a few people who aren't going to return to the workplace and are going to be permanently working from home. I mean, there seems to be Zoom seems to have taken a, a massive rise in, in usage at the minute. Um, I, I have a random question for you. Um, I, I'm on a, a Zoom call on a regular basis and um, with one of my uh, with one of my colleagues and um, previously a very professional person and uh, and now that, that this person is working from home it seems to be uh, it seems to give quite the different sort of um, message because uh, he's quite clearly working from his back bedroom um, and, and it gives you a very different spin on that person and I, I thought it does actually impact on on a customer's reputation or on a client reputation and on a brand um, from uh, the the background, effectively that you're you're portraying. Um, now I know Zoom does uh, have virtual backgrounds, but they um, they're not always ideal. Is there anything that an employer should be saying to to their staff about the the background that they're choosing to use or the uniform or, or what are your thoughts on that? Well, you know, I, I agree with the Zoom digital backgrounds. You know, you, you don't want to see your accountant in their bedroom or in a fish tank, so I completely agree <laughs> there. Um, I, I think just like anywhere else, it's important to have your business represented correctly. Now, initially, when we first went into lockdown and some people continued to work through uh, Zoom and online sources, I think you almost expected to see that person in their living room or conservatory or spare bedroom. It, it, you almost expected it. You knew that it was something that we had to deal with with very little notice. Yeah. So initially, it was fine. Now, I think we need to start thinking about how that is being a representative to our business and what they're showing as a result. Just like how you can go into your office when it's empty and take a look around and see how you can alter things, you can do the same thing with people working from home you give them a uniform so as an aesthetic consultant when I work with commercial companies I assist them aesthetically with everything from the design of their shop how the furniture or the desks will be laid out the branding the logo the signage right down to the uniforms that each different type of employee would wear based on what position they do within the company so I think having a neutral background when using a Zoom chat is just as important as the uniform you wear. And I think it really is down to an employer to explain that to their staff and to sort of let them know that as much as is expected of you to wear this uniform because of the way it presents our company, the background that you have when you're using these Zoom chats are just as important. 
So as long as you can provide exactly what you want from them and tell them what you expect and make it achievable, you can't ask for things that wouldn't necessarily be in a domestic environment. So I think a plain wall, if they can sit by a plain wall, it's perfect. You know, little things like if they sit behind a painting that is really garish and maybe might be slightly offensive or completely clashes with all the colours in the room, ask them to take it down. It could be a big ask, but to be honest with you, I think as long as you, as the employee, have a station that is yours that you use when you Zoom chat somebody or when you FaceTime somebody, Mm -hmm. it makes it easier. You don't have to worry about cleaning an area or cleaning an entire room before you can sit down and and have that Zoom chat. It's the same as when you have a uniform you wear to work. I always put myself in a, we don't have an official uniform with house but I always ask myself and all of my staff to wear black, only because I think it's easier to get up in the morning and just quickly find that outfit that you want to wear, put it on and leave. Mm-hmm. It makes the process so much easier and concise and everybody looks the same and smart and professional. You're asking to recreate that same environment at home so that everybody can just look the same when they're at home and it'd be very neutral and just all about you as the person and not what's going on behind you. Mm-hmm. So, Jack, I'd imagine at the moment um, that most of your your team uh, with um, House uh, from an interior design point of view, I suppose a lot of those are furloughed at the moment, and um, which is completely understandable because you can't go inside people's houses. Um, but as this lockdown scenario sort of eases and uh, and and fades away, um, are you anticipating a, a surge in interior design? And and if so, um, is it going to be based on this uh, this virus finishing and the social distancing? Or is it going to be people who have been sat in their house effectively for 10, maybe 12 weeks saying, I need to change? Um, I think from my staff's point of view, not a lot will change. As a basis, we work uh, in South Wales, we work in London and we work in Paris. So we are quite used to doing video conferences with our clients as well as sending maybe somebody out to a premises to take 360 photos of an area so that we can then use them back at our office to plan uh, and design space. From that point of view, not a lot will change. We may start doing that more and more for customers who don't necessarily want a room full of people to come to their property uh, and chat and walk around. Sometimes on a consultation, I could come, I could bring a, a kitchen specialist with me, I could bring a bathroom specialist with me, a wood floor specialist with me, and we all walk around the property together and we look um, at what we can do when we, you know, we sort of give feedback to the client and give them an expectation of what can be achieved. So I think necessarily that will change. People might not want that. Um, from the client, we are, we're, get, we're getting more and more busy. I'm trying to remember that I'm furloughed and that I'm not working at the moment, but it's hard to not check my emails and and I'm not going to ignore my clients who obviously still want to perform a service. Um, A lot of my customers in France who own holiday homes are thinking about, are they going to be busy when this is all over? Because a lot of people are going to want to travel, especially from the UK. We might be a little bit nervous going further afield, but France is just a ferry ride or, you know, an hour and a half plane ride away. And you're there. So a lot of my customers in France are thinking, right, I've got that holiday home that I bought. I haven't done much with it at the moment. Now's the time for me to get house in, to really get it up to scratch, to get it up to standard, get the bookings and start welcoming in our first paying guests. So 
a lot of my customers are thinking, what can I have in the property that is easy to clean, easy to disinfect, that isn't something that's going to cost me a lot of money necessarily when a lot of people um, are booking. So one thing we're encouraging a lot at the moment is to use bedding that isn't yours that you own. And I know a lot of holiday let people like to own their own bedding with nice patterns and styles and things like that on them that they take off and wash in between each one. Technically speaking, it will become a logistical nightmare, especially when we're thinking about boil washing a lot of our bedding to make sure that it's completely sanitary for the next person that we put it on for. Mm-hmm. So we're encouraging using a lot of the partners, you know, on the sites in the areas that we work that offer hotel linens that get washed um, to a completely sterile standard and we get a new shift back out there. So they've always mm-hmm. got a level of stock to use doesn't cost much more to be honest with you when you weigh out how much per wash and dry and iron and time what it costs you to do it with your own bedding it's just as cheap to do it with a a hotel linen company um when it comes to furniture we're looking at things that can quite easily be sanitized you know if it's wood is it going to be a varnished wood that's easy to spray with a disinfectant product and wipe down uh same with bathrooms a lot more of my customers now are inquiring about full wet rooms that can just be sanitised and steam cleaned from top to bottom, in and out, very easy to clean. Uh, no nooks and crannies that need to be made sure they've gotten into and, uh, and, and cleaned every single time somebody leaves, which is something we always strive towards when it comes to holiday let. You need to think of it as a hotel room in a way, um, in the size of a house. And hotel rooms are very specifically designed in mind for when people check out and when the cleaners go back in and when they clean. It would surprise a lot of people to know that hotel curtains probably only get cleaned once a year. Sounds quite disgusting in premise when you think about it. <laughs> Just a little. But the material that they're made out of are made in a way that they don't need to be cleaned very regularly. They just need to be hit every now and again to get the dust out of them, sprayed with a disinfectant product that will sit on it, you know, something like a Dettol spray or something. And that's enough to keep it clean until uh, the point when it needs to be taken down and cleaned thoroughly. Um, so I think we're sort of starting to move in that direction with our customers to help them realise how easy it is to run an Airbnb and run a holiday let and have it completely sanitary for a busy, for what we're all hoping will be a busy uh, season. Great. Some fantastic advice there. That was Jack Bjornstrom, the head interior designer of House. Thanks very much. Next up, I'll be chatting with Mark Drakeford, the First Minister of Wales. Here's who's in the think tank for the next few weeks. I'll be speaking with Alan Keynes, Secretary of State for Wales, about what the UK government will be doing to help support the tourism industry in Wales. I'll be speaking with Liz Brooks, who's the Director of Grapevine Events, about how business awards in Wales will need to adapt in a socially distant world. Ken Poole, the Head of Economic Development for Cardiff Council, will be here to talk about a change in office spaces in our capital city. Matt Hyde, the founder of the Fintech Awards and director of Recruit One to One, will be here to talk about recruiting and the change in the finance workforce, and much more. And we're back. Now I'm chatting with Mark Drakeford, the First Minister of Wales. So, first of all, you're running the country during what is undeniably the most complex and difficult period in modern history here. So, I just wanted to see how are you? Oh, well, thank you. Well, I'm, I'm fine. 
thank you. And uh, lucky enough to be you know healthy and reasonably resilient. Uh, it is demanding. You know, the, there's not much recovery time at the moment because it's busy all through every day and into weekends and so on. But yeah. by and large, if I have a night's sleep, I'm okay again. <laughs> oh, fantastic. So, Mark, business in Wales has virtually come to a halt and, and particularly affected is the hospitality industry. Given the need to reopen being at odds with the social distancing measures remaining in place, what are your thoughts on what could be done and what can be put into place to help the sector during this time? Well, I guess, first of all, you know, in recognition, because of exactly the points you're making, lots of the help that has come from the UK government and indeed to the Welsh government has been focused on the hospitality sector because one of the things we know most of all about the coronavirus is uh, that it loves people getting together because the more people there are getting together, the easier it spreads. Yeah. So inevitably, um, there's a big impact on the hospitality sector. Um, I am myself hugely impressed by the um, ingenuity uh, of the sector. Uh, I see restaurants near where I live who have been doing click and collect yeah. uh, or takeaway stuff. And of course, click and collect is allowed now more explicitly here uh, in Wales. I see cafes in Cardiff who can uh, serve people outdoors, yeah. reopening, because we know that uh, the virus doesn't like the sunlight and it doesn't like uh, the fresh air. So I'm hugely impressed by the as I say, you know, the resilience and the ingenuity that the sector is showing. Yeah. We've got to be realistic. Uh, some parts of the hospitality industry are going to be in our traffic light system, you know, in the green end, the further end, yeah. before we're able to see pubs, restaurants, things like that, open in the way that they once did. Yeah, most definitely. We, we are a resilient bunch, uh, the, the Welsh, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Fantastic. So I was recently joined by a commercial interior designer from a Cardiff agency house who said that more of a social mindset change than a physical change to retail stores will be needed. Um, do you foresee the public adequately adopting this and adapting to this, or do we need to put some more visible distancing measures in place, in, especially in retail spaces? Well, I think it's going to be a mixture of both. Mm -hmm. And you know, in eight weeks, we have learned um, most enormous amount, I think, from the way that uh, supermarkets, for example, operate. Uh, if we'd been talking in the middle of February, uh, the idea that you know there would be social distancing marks outside supermarkets, that there'd be one-way systems inside them, that your trolley would be sanitised every time you went in, we wouldn't have we couldn't imagine it, could I we? And yet, agree. all of those things have been put in place and put in place very effectively and very quickly. But thinking of what you said about you know, the sort of social adaptability, in some ways it is people's adaptability that is even more striking. You know, I join the queue uh, outside yeah. uh, when I go shopping. I'm, I'm still absolutely amazed and awestruck really with just how people behave. People queue up, they, they're nice with one another, yeah. they move along, they, you know, at that distance, they exchange a few words with people, mm -hmm. uh, far from it being an unpleasant or sort of oppressive experience. 
um, I think it will make the most of it. Definitely. I think that, you know, that social adaptability is happening, and as more retail and uh, you know, non-essential retail comes to be open, then I think it will be a mixture of some physical measures that will be needed, and then the fact that we turn out to be hugely uh, adaptable ourselves yeah. to the new world that we're in. Most definitely. We, we've become far more of a community, I've noticed that myself. Yeah, no, uh, if you sit, if, as you stand inside, outside in a queue for a few minutes, you are a tiny little community. Yeah. Even if you don't need that for two minutes or you can bring it on. <laughs> but just in those few minutes, you know, you do feel there's a bit of solidarity between people. Definitely. So the Economic Resilience Fund, Mark, has been incredibly well received. I've heard this so many times and it's been mentioned by accountants in previous editions of this podcast as being the fund that's kept most businesses alive, which is a huge statement. Um, so given its success, would you encourage other nations to maybe a- adopt a similar approach? Uh, well, our Economic Resilience Fund, as you know, it's a £500 million fund and its main aim is to fill the gaps that emerged in the help that businesses in Wales are getting from the UK government. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I always take uh, the opportunity to say that although you know we are administrations of different political parties and so on, uh, you know we really do appreciate uh, the help that the UK government has provided through its furlough scheme and, and so on. But our five hundred million pounds fund uh, was designed to fill gaps in all of that Mm -hmm. and you know as you say i think it has been hugely welcomed it was hugely uh subscribed the development bank for wales for example received over 1600 applications uh for the fund it uh made uh available and the economic resilience fund has received nearly 7,000 applications from micro-businesses. So I'm sure you were right when you say that it has been well received. Um, I'm sure that other parts of the United Kingdom are working on similar schemes that fit with their needs and circumstances. Mm -hmm. My view of devolution has always been, it's not a competition. I'm always allergic to a sort of league table approach to devolution. What devolution is, it's an opportunity for us to try different things in different places and learn from one another. Yeah. Uh, we try and learn from what goes on elsewhere, not just in the UK, but around the world in terms of offering help to businesses. And where there are people interested in what we've done, we're always keen to share our experiences as well. Yeah. I completely agree. I mean, it's, as you said, it's always the case that some businesses fall through this grant gap that happens. Um, is is Wales likely to offer anything further in the in the near future to help this minority, or are we a little too far away to say that at the moment? Uh, no. Uh, so my colleague, Ken Skates, the economy minister, I think made an announcement yesterday giving a bit more detail on the pause in the economic resilience fund. We paused it at the end of April because... Uh, both a volume of applications and needing to be able to deal with them, but also because we wanted to learn from the experience of that fund so far. So phase two of the fund uh, is going to reopen in the middle of June. Fantastic. Um, I, I think I saw the 16th of June, but I'd probably need to check the, the exact date. Mm-hmm. Um, and in phase two, there will be a new offer 
or those firms who weren't able to take part in phase one because we required firms to be VAT registered I see. before they could get help from the fund. Now, there was a good reason for that. It is, in the end, public money. Yeah. You've got to ensure that you're handing it out to you know, bona fide businesses that really do exist and I totally you know, agree. not just somebody who's filled their form in and <laughs> uh, so they can get a bit of money that way. Yeah. And VAT registration was a shorthand way of making sure that it was a legitimate business. Yeah. Uh, now, the trouble is, there are quite a lot of legitimate businesses who aren't VAT registered. So in phase two of a uh, fund from the middle of June, we are going to find ways in which we can help limited companies who are not VAT registered so that they can get access to the fund. Brilliant. The, the Welsh economy has injected so much into the nation at the moment, uh, Mark, both in terms of the direct grants to businesses and changes to infrastructure. Are there any plans in place to possibly recoup this expense? And are we likely to be able to afford these steps um, if this or, or indeed another virus arrives at any point in the future? Well, the help that we have offered directly from the Welsh Government to business is, is a mixture of grants and loans. Mm-hmm. Uh, most of it is grant. And where it is grant, then we won't be looking to uh, recoup that from people. Yeah. Uh, where we have been able to offer loans, generally through uh, the Development Bank for Wales, and the interest rates are as low as you will get uh, in the marketplace for for firms at this time, but of course they are loans and over time we will be expecting to recoup that money. Mm-hmm. Um, looking further ahead as your president does, you know, we're in for a very tough time. Yeah. We know that from the unemployment figures that were published earlier this week. The economy, uh, coronavirus is a health emergency, but it is an economic emergency as well. Uh, and we, we are going to see a downturn in the economy greater than anything we've seen certainly since the global financial crisis Mm -hmm. and to respond to the need of the economy on that scale you have to have a uk-wide approach you know i think ken said yesterday it is only the uk government that has the firepower to be able to inject demand into the economy so that there are people able to spend and therefore people who produce goods and services have a market that they can sell into Um, and making sure that there is effective demand in the economy over the next six months uh, is a job that only the UK government I think can do. Great but looking ahead into a a post-lockdown Wales uh, what are our high streets likely to look like Mark? Are are we likely to return to to a a bustling city high street or is there likely to be a bit more of a a strict approach that includes social distancing? Well I think there will always be an important role for high streets Um, you know the high street was changing before coronavirus Mm -hmm. uh, and the retailer sector, the British Retail Consortium, and so on, you know, working hard to try to identify the ingredients that go into a successful high street. And, you know, I, one of the reasons why I think there is a future is that um, people shop online, all of that sort of thing, but actually people like people Definitely. as well. You know, they, they want to be where other people are. So the, for the high street to survive and thrive, I think it will look less generic than it has in the past. Okay. You know, high street will have to have something distinctive to offer. Mm-hmm. There will have to be a particular reason for going there. We need a character. 
uh, and an appeal. But it's a bit special. But people know if you go to that particular high street, you're going to get an experience of this sort. I completely and agree. I think high streets that can offer that uh, will continue to uh, thrive. I think they will be more um, residential in high streets. I think there will be more people living above uh, shops right. so that there's, you know, so that high streets don't just sort of switch off at half past five in the evening and then dead until the next morning. Maybe yeah. there'll, be, there'll be life on the high street outside the normal mm-hmm. hours. And I do think the public uh, sector has a role to play. Um, we are applying a high street's first principle to the investments that the Welsh Government makes, always asking ourselves the question, could this activity be located on the high street? Yeah. And the answer is always yes. If you're building a whole new school, um, <laughs> then the chances are you won't find a space on the high street no. for it. But, you know, if, you're, if you are funding an advice service yeah. where people need to walk in off the street in order to get it, you know, putting that advice service on the high street is a pretty good investment in footfall, but also it's a place where, you know, people go yeah. and it makes that service accessible. Definitely. Um, Wales attracts many companies every year. Do, do you foresee continued investment in Wales in the coming months and years? Or is that a bit difficult to judge as well at the moment? Well, uh, it's going to be a, a much more challenging and difficult environment for inward investment in the immediate future. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Wales does have you know, a long and very successful history of attracting firms from around the world yeah. to come to Wales. Uh, I went to Japan back in the autumn. I was there partly as the focus of the Rugby World Cup was there. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, I, uh, I took the chance when I was there to go meet an awful lot of companies who invest in Wales from Japan. And I attended uh, a meeting of what they call the Club Life. Right. So this is a, a, this is a, a club made up of Japanese people who have worked in Wales. All right. You know, back living in Japan, but whose memories of Wales uh, are so warm and strong that they formed a club where they get together, you know, to uh, talk to each other about what it was like to live in Wales. And oh, that's fantastic. And the president of the club um, came here 40 years ago. Wow. Uh, and he's in his 80s now. It <laughs> uh, was a fantastic chance to meet him and... The club is very active and it's a really good source for us because, you know, it it advertises Wales uh, just, by, yeah. just by being there. So, look, we've done a huge amount. Um, what we offer in terms of skills, in terms of an incredibly sort of dedicated and loyal workforce, what we offer in terms of quality of life uh, for people who come to live in Wales, you know, the fact that we have a combination of urban experience for those people who want sport and culture and arts and so on, and yet have the outdoors right on your doorstep as well. We've got a very big offer, uh, and that offer will still be important in the future. Um, There's going to be a difficult period to go through, but as the world economy revives, we will definitely be there, you know, selling whales, Mm -hmm. growing indigenous businesses, are really important and we've learned a lot about that in coronavirus particularly the ppe Mm -hmm. uh, you know sector where we have firms in wales who've turned themselves into producers of ppe which is in a fantastic uh way definitely Um, but they will always be global companies and we will always be 
looking to see what Wales can offer them and, of course, what they can offer Wales. Cardiff Airport is a, an important part of the tourism sector in Wales. And given the current restrictions and ongoing hesitation by consumers to travel, are we likely to see a long-term downturn in the airport's growth? Well, look, you know, the Welsh Government bought Cardiff Airport in 2013 from its uh, multinational uh, owners who, frankly, had not done a great deal for the airport over mm. a number of years. And the history since then has been one of growth and expansion and growing numbers and coronavirus is a huge blow uh, to that trajectory because uh, aerospace and aviation are in huge difficulty everywhere across the world and there are currently no passenger services operating out of Cardiff Airport but um, Cardiff Airport is symbolically important to Wales uh, you know it's, a, it's our regional airport as a nation uh, we will be working very hard with the board and the people who advise us to try and find a pathway from where things are today so that the airport can still be there in the future. Yeah. Uh, but that is a challenging path uh, and there, there will be lots of discussions needed to see um, how that can be brought about. But the importance of the uh, airport is obviously something that we, you know, we recognise very much. Mm-hmm. Most definitely. And and speaking of tourism, much of Wales relies so heavily on tourism. As we approach the, the busiest part of the year, many business owners, including holiday homeowners, are, are rightfully concerned, I suppose. Will there be steps in place to help support them further if needed as well? Well, there is lots of support available for tourism and lots of it available through the UK government's schemes yeah. because along with hospitality, it was recognised early on, you know, as one of the really um, frontline sort of difficulties in the economy. Uh, I remain hopeful. I don't say optimistic. I remain hopeful that it will still be possible to reopen some limited parts of tourism before the end of this season. Um, but I don't want to uh, be any more optimistic than yeah. that. And tourist operators in Wales, I think, really do understand that reopening can only be done with community consent. And there's lots of anxiety uh, in you know, the far west of Wales, north and south, who've had lower levels of coronavirus up until now, about opening up those places and having people from elsewhere coming and creating infection where infection has been avoided. So... Um, as we aim to try to do things that will begin the business of opening up tourism again, it will have to be done in a way that takes those communities with us, uh, either it, or it's not going to work at all. But um, we worked very closely with the tourism sector. We had a major meeting on it here last week that I chaired uh, internally in the Welsh Government to plan ahead, to think about support, to try and make sure and Chris, in the end, this is the fundamental, isn't it? What we want to see is businesses who were successful in 2019 being there to be successful in 2021. Definitely. And to find a way of getting through 2020 yeah. to the one with the other. Definitely. Thanks very much for joining us, Mark. That was Mark Drakeford giving us a great insight into how Wales will be recovering and growing following the coronavirus. 
Next week, I'll be speaking with HR guru, Kath Greenslade, about all things furlough, and she'll be giving advice to employers. I'll also be speaking to Adrian Hornet about mortgages for the self-employed, and where's best to put your money right now. Then, in two weeks' time, I'll be speaking with Gavin Hill-John about fast-adapting businesses and how this crisis has pushed many industries into the future. You can also find more information on other contributors and put your ideas forward for future editions. If you enjoyed our podcast and want to hear more, hit subscribe and you'll know when the next edition goes live. Have a great week.